evening, young people and young marrieds and anybody else who falls into a category that you want to place yourself. It's my privilege to be with you this week. I come as the character in the book, Evangelist, to point you to the Lord Jesus Christ. With the Apostle Paul, we say, we come not preaching ourselves, but Christ Jesus the Lord, and ourselves your servants, for Jesus' sake. We're not here this week to put on a show. We're not here to try to get your pat on the back. We're not here to try to gain your approval, although I hope to make many friends here this week in fellowship with you. But we will let you know that we are here with the sole purpose of trying to glorify God in pointing you to the truth of the gospel in the Lord Jesus Christ. I promise you ahead of time that if you're here without Christ, I would love to see you converted and become a Christian. I promise you ahead of time, though, I will use no psychological methods of manipulation upon you this week to get you to do something that you otherwise would not wish to do. I'm not here to try to trick you. I'm not here to try to give you a false impression of what Christianity is. We're here to tell you the truth because that's how we show our love toward one another. And so you pray for us as we fellowship together in this great book this week and also in the various other activities of this camp. Now, if you have your booklets, this, uh, this is the booklet, and this is the book. I'll get all the B's straightened out here as the uh, week goes along. I'd like for you to just let it fall open to its natural place right into the middle of the book, and there you'll see the map uh, drawn, which shows the journey of our hero, whom we will come to know as Christian. And you'll see that his journey begins in the city of destruction and ends up in the celestial city. That is, he's traveling from this present world into the world beyond. And the celestial city represents heaven, or the place where the redeemed of God shall live forever and forever. Tonight, we hope to get up to the place called the Wicked Gate, from the city of destruction to the Wicked Gate. And we're going to try to cover in the five sessions allotted to us this week the essential ingredients in becoming a Christian and entering into the celestial city. And tonight's lesson will be the first ingredient that everyone must undergo in order to enter into the celestial city, and that is called conviction for sin. Then we will look at the conversion from sin. And then in the third message, we will look at the Christian's confrontation on the journey with the world, the flesh, and the devil. And then in the fourth lesson, we will look at the consummation of the Christian life as the pilgrim enters into the city of the celestial estate. He crosses the river which has no bridge, that is death, and enters in to his reward. And then, the Lord willing, on Friday, we will look at a very solemn ending to the first part of the book under the theme of condemnation as we see a false pilgrim who follows along all the way, whose name is ignorance, only to be cast out as he applies for entrance at the city. So those five words, all beginning with C, to try to help us form in our memories the essential ingredients of understanding the Christian gospel. Now, something very quickly about the book. The goal of the book is designed to show the experimental nature of the Christian religion. It is the pilgrimage or the experience of a person who becomes convinced that they are lost, that they are under the wrath of God, and how that God brings them to a saving assurance of salvation or acceptance with him. The book is divided into two parts. There's a first part. And there's a second part. In our series this week, we'll only get to cover the first part. But I encourage you as young people that as time allows to read the second part 
because I really feel there are many things in the second part which speak more to young people than in the first part. The first part of the book, Bunyan's design, was primarily to show the experience of a Christian as they are primarily alone. And the the Christian only has one or two good friends along the way. First name was Faithful. Later on, Faithful will be martyred. In Vanity Fair and Hopeful will take his place. But it's designed to show that Christianity can be a very lonely thing for some individuals. The second part of the book is designed to show how that Christian's wife, Christiana, who formerly rejected Christian from becoming a Christian in the first part of the book, how she is converted and with the children, they set out to make their pilgrimage to the celestial city where the Christian has already entered into. And that part of the book is designed to show primarily the fellowship that Christians can enjoy in church relationship. That is, the first part of the book primarily to show that the Christian life can be a lonely experience, and the second part of the book designed to show the privileges and the encouragement of Christian fellowship. And if you have a church that you can go to and enjoy Christian fellowship, by all means you take advantage of that. For there's much strength and much encouragement that can be gained from fellowshipping with other Christians. But not all enjoy the providence of God of being able to have access unto a good church. Some have set out and have been ordained by God's providence to live very lonely lives. For our author himself served 12 years in jail for preaching the gospel. His name is John Bunyan. Now, John Bunyan was born in the year 1628 in Bedford, England. He died in the year 1688 at the age of 60. He was a very poor individual. His trade was that of a tinker or a brazier, a maker of pots and pans. To help us get a little idea as to when the book was written, it was written about the same time that the pilgrims came to America in 1620 written about the same time that William Shakespeare was alive and doing his writing, written about the same time that the King James Bible was being translated into English. It was written at a time when the Puritans lived in England, and they later separated from the Church of England and became known as nonconformists, and many of those came over this country and were some of the founding fathers of this country. So what the founding fathers of this country came here for religious freedom, they believed what John Bunyan believed. And that will give us much insight as to how we have departed from the beliefs of the people who originally settled our country. Bunyan wrote the book while he was in jail. He was jailed because he was not an ordained uh, Church of England preacher. And it was the law of the land that unless that you were ordained in the church state, you were not allowed to preach. Well, Mr. Bunyan went ahead and preached, and he was thrown in jail for some 12-year span of time because of that. Pilgrim's Progress, not because I say it, but because many other join in with it, is the greatest religious book in the world next to the Bible. It is the greatest religious book in the world next to the Bible. No other religious book has been translated and issued so many editions as the book Pilgrim's Progress. It has been translated in languages and dialects now in excess of 200, a dialect being sort of a branch off of a main language. Pilgrim's Progress is the Bible with pictures. It is the Bible with pictures. Now, don't misunderstand me. As you open up your book, you may not see pictures in that. I mean, as you had these young men come up here and they read from this book, they were developing characters which you actually find in the Bible. And it makes the Bible become alive and real unto us. If you want to know what the Bible teaches and you need some aid in it, then you get the London Confession of Faith or the Philadelphia Confession of Faith, and it will interpret 
in theological language what the Bible is or what the Bible is teaching. If you want the Bible experimentally, then pick up and read the book Pilgrim's Progress because it's the life of a Christian in what he really experiences and lives. It's the life of a Christian who is traveling between two worlds, the city of destruction to the celestial city. The book is an allegory. That means it is something close to a simile, a parable, or a comparison. It is, compa- it is taking a, a character such as pliable, and it develops that character in an allegorical fashion to set forth that there are people who are easily persuaded one way or another. It may take the character obstinate, which means stubborn, and shows how that the Bible says that there can be stubborn opposition to the truth of God when it is read in the Bible. So these characters become alive to us, and they're real people, and they're made up of people that I'm looking at right tonight. Because I'm not going to be speaking to people this week who are foreign to the characters and the places in this book. You're here tonight. I'm in this book. You're in this book. And we'll find ourselves as we go through this book together this week. And if you start finding yourself, I hope many of you will find yourself right off right here tonight, sensing your need of having your conscience cleansed for conviction of your sin. Now, let's begin reading very quickly as we get into the book, and our theme tonight is again conviction of sin. Please open now in the book Pilgrim's Progress to page 1, and also have your Bible there handy as we look up some of the biblical references. Now, remember, Mr. Bunyan wrote this while he was imprisoned. While many other people would have been bemoaning how their life was being wasted and taken from them, Mr. Bunyan was given the grace of God to write this masterpiece, which only goes to show us that in the most difficult of providences, we can uh, see the hand of God as a hand of mercy toward us. Maybe some of you here tonight, you're undergoing some bad providences. Maybe you're like I was as an 18-year-old boy, set out to follow my father's footsteps as a Major League Baseball player, only to have my father die in a surgical error at age 40. And that providence changed my whole life, young people. Maybe, I don't know, I might be speaking to somebody here tonight that you've lost a parent or you've had something terrible occur in your life, and you're saying, I don't know whether I can go on. Remember, Mr. Bunyan wrote this masterpiece under one of the most difficult circumstances that one could be placed in, cut off from his wife and children, separated, not being able to provide financially for them like he would like to. And in the meantime, he wrote this masterpiece. Now, follow along with me. He states it in this fashion. As I walked through the wilderness of this world, I lighted on a certain place where was a den and laid me down in that place to sleep. And as I slept, I dreamed a dream. Now, we must not understand that Bunyan himself went to sleep physically and dreamed what he later wrote. But this is used in the fashion to help us understand how he is writing. He is revealing this to us in a book fashion, so that he's saying, not that he actually went to sleep and dreamed a dream, but he is saying that as he walked through the wilderness of this world, he lighted on a certain place. Where was a dream? A den. He laid down And he slept, and he dreamed a dream, and this is what he dreamed. Now, let's look. The first sentence is rich with instruction. Rich with instruction. I appreciate those who participated in the reading of the section a few moments ago. Notice the first three words, as I walked. 
Bunyan would have us to understand that our life here is a pilgrimage. It's not a dead-end thing. It's not a lifeless thing. When you were born, you began to grow immediately, physically, mentally, emotionally. As you get out tomorrow and you take a walk up the beach, you will be making progress. And you'll be able to look back and see steps in the sand. That means that's where you were a few moments ago, only now you're out here. Tonight, you are here by the providence of God, and you're on a journey. You're walking, and there's a destiny that you're heading. Whether that you like it or not, whether you deny it or not, there is a destiny out there for all of us as we enter this world. Life is a pilgrimage. He states, as I walk through the wilderness of this world. That is, he would have us to understand that this life is like going through a heavy wilderness area. As you walk along life, you ought to be able to look off to your right and off to the left and see what's on either side of the path. But when you get in a wilderness, you can get confused and you can lose your bearing and lose your direction. So Bunyan would have us to understand that life is a very confusing thing as we find ourselves in it. And there are three primary questions that face all of us if we give life any serious consideration at all. They are, first, where did I come from? How did I get here? Where did I come from? Why am I here, secondly? And thirdly, where am I going? Do those questions confuse you, young people? Where did you come from? Why are you here? Is there any purpose in life? And is there any destiny in life? And the philosophies of this world can put us in a wilderness of confusion because the world cannot answer those three questions. Only the Word of God can answer that. There's only been one person who has ever gone through this life, died and lived again to come back and tell us the answers to these perplexing questions, and that person is none other than God's own Son, Jesus Christ, God incarnate in the flesh. So he came to a place where he says there was a den. This means the prison, the Bedford jail, in which that he was imprisoned. And while he was in that jail, then he was privileged to write what now becomes known as Pilgrim's Progress. He introduces us right off to our main character in the book. He doesn't have a name at this time. His name will later become Christian. But he says, as I dreamed and behold, I saw, and he saw four things and let's watch them. First, he saw a man clothed with rags standing in a certain place. Secondly, with his face from his own house. Thirdly, he had a book in his hand, and fourthly, he had a great burden upon his back. Each one of these statements is an image to portray us of what we are as in the sight of God. First of all, where does he get the biblical basis for saying that the man was clothed with rags? If you take your Bible and go with me to the Old Testament book of Isaiah, chapter 64. Would you turn back there, please? Isaiah, chapter 64. And verse 6. Here is what the man had come to see himself as. But we are all as an unclean thing, and all our righteousnesses are as what? Filthy rags. And we all do fade as a leaf, and our iniquities like the wind have taken us away. Now notice that the text does not say that all our sins are as filthy rags. But even the best deeds that we do in the sight of God are not perfect and hence unacceptable unto God. So here is the biblical basis for seeing the picture which is upon our, our, the cover of our book. 
It is a man who is clothed with filthy rags. The second part about this man who's under conviction for his sin is that he was standing in a certain place with his face from his own house. That is, he had turned his back upon that which he had formerly been very comfortable with, his family, his home, his job, his occupation. That's what he looked to to have meaning in life. Only now he'd come to see that these, these things cannot in and of themselves give reason and meaning to life. And so he has turned his back upon the temporal pursuits of earthly comforts and pleasure, and he's looking in another direction, which shows us that conviction of sin involves an about-face. It brings us to see that all have sinned and come short of the glory of God, and it causes us to value the, the, the value of our own immortal soul more than anything else in this life. Yes, even father and mother and brother and sister, and yes, Jesus said, even who? Our own self. Our own self. There's something that is worth more than all the, the world can offer, and that is the joy of your own immortal soul. For what shall a man give in what? In exchange for his soul. What shall it profit a man if he gain the whole world and lose his own soul? So a person who is convicted for sin is one who knows that they are a sinner, that even their best deeds cannot please a holy God because they're doing it for improper reasons. And secondly, a person who's convicted of their sin is one who is willing to forego all of what the world has to offer them if he can only have forgiveness and acceptance with God. The third thing about a person who's convicted of their sin is that is, Bunyan says that he had a book in his hand. Now, what do you think that book represents? Hmm? Anybody know? What kind of a book? The Bible. Well, how do you get to know that you're a sinner? Because a preacher told you? Don't believe anything a preacher says unless he has some authority for it. You say, well, Mom and Dad told me. Well, don't listen to Mom and Dad unless they have some authority for it. Don't listen to Grandmother. Don't listen to anyone unless they get it from the book. From the book. This is where we have our conviction of sin brought upon us. Some people like to go out into the mountains and they say, oh, I feel so close to God when I get to the mountains. Some like to go to the seashore and say, I feel so close to God when I get to the, close to the ocean. My friend, when you get in the book, you'll find something out about yourself and God. And at first, you will not feel close to God. In fact, you will want to run as far as you could to get away from the knowledge of what God is saying about us who are outside of the ark of safety, Jesus Christ. So he learned about his sins from the book. Mr. Worldly Wise Man will tell him to get rid of the book. No, no, don't read that. That'll just make you feel guilty. Get rid of it. And there are many churches and many ministers today who say, get rid of the Bible. Don't take the Bible literally. Don't really believe it. It'll make you have a psychological disorder. It'll make you have low self-esteem. Don't read the Bible. One very popular minister of the day says that the last thing that you ever want to tell a person is that they are a sinner. That's the last thing a Christian minister should ever tell a person is that they are a sinner. My friend, you will never enter the celestial city. You'll never enter heaven unless you confess you are a sinner, for heaven is for sinners only. Hmm? How do you know that, Brother Gables? Because Jesus said, I didn't come to call the who? The righteous, but sinners to repentance. I came to seek and to save that which was lost. Jesus came into this world to save lost people. And for someone to profess to be a Christian minister and say it's the worst thing that you can ever do to tell a person that they're lost, 
Oh, that's but how Bunyan would describe Mr. Worldly Wise Man. Those who would disregard what's in the book and use their own natural reasoning processes to try to determine out how to be right with God. Then the fourth thing that marks a convicted person is that they had a great burden upon his back. That means guilt. He was weighted down. We were driving uh, down here today, and it was very interesting. There was a guy walking along the side of the road with a cane, and he had a pack on his back, and he had old ragged clothes on. And I turned to my wife, and I said, look at there. There's our pilgrim. There's Christian. He's going to the camp also. What a coincidence to see that very image that we have here on the cover of our book. He had a burden upon his back. What does that mean? It means that he knew he was a sinner outside of Christ and was assured of it. Say that again, Pastor Gables. Here is a man who knows he's lost. Who, who read the part of Pliable a while ago? Who was Pliable here? Which one? Right here. You know what your character was lacking? He didn't have any burden on his back. You remember that? Yet he set out, I want to go to heaven. He just wanted to have a good time. Just like some of you have come here this week. You just came here to have a good time. You didn't care about, well, I'll endure that preaching just so long as I can get in the water. Pliable had no conviction of sin, and hence he did not endure very long in the pathway. But here our hero is one who's convinced that he is a sinner, and a sinner that needs the forgiveness of God, but he does not know how he can find it. Now, young people, that is how Christian conversion begins. Before a person is ever brought into a saving relationship with Christ, they are first brought to see their, lost need, their lostness and their need of Jesus Christ. I had a, a fellow tell me one time, wouldn't it be great if we could just get people saved the way people used to be saved years ago? Well, I appreciate his interest, but my reply was, I said, first of all, before we're ever going to get people saved, we've got to get them lost. And then this fellow, he didn't like the way that I told him how we get people lost, and that's preaching to them their moral duty and their responsibility as creatures under God's holy law. He said, well, I'm not under any law. Now, this was a Christian minister, a Christian minister. My friend, you'll never see the need of Jesus hanging on an old rugged cross until you see that you have broken the law of God. You'll never see that. And pliables will fill our churches. They will join the Sunday school classes. They'll come to the Christian retreats to have a good time. But when the slew of despondency and conviction begins to hit upon them, then, Brother Bill, they get sick at seminar time. And then they get well at recreation time. Hmm? This is the pliable. And many of our churches are made up of pliables today. Just easily persuaded. Come on, join our young people's department. Be baptized. Put your name on the church roll. Everything's fine. And then we have people that are filling our church pews who have no burden on their back, and yet they're, they're told that they're Christians. And when you begin to teach to them the unsearchable riches of God, you're speaking a language of Zion which they're totally unacquainted with. It's just like if I came here tonight and started speaking Spanish or Greek to you, most of you would not be able to understand a word I was talking about. Is it any wonder that pastors can preach the Bible to the pliables and it's like speaking a strange language unto them? Because they don't know the language of Zion. They're unacquainted with conviction of sin. I looked and I saw him open the book and read therein, and as he read, he wept and trembled. And not being able longer to contain, he break out with a lamentable cry, saying, What shall I do? 
Anybody remember a man in the New Testament who cried out something like that in the book of Acts? Who was that? What was he called? The Philippian what? The Philippian jailer. What must I do to be saved? What about on the day of Pentecost? you remember when Peter was preaching in Acts chapter 2? They actually interrupted his message, and they said, Men and brethren, what shall we do? Here were people who became convinced that if God brought them to the judgment at that moment, they were going to perish, and they wanted some remedy. Those who are hungry will find the Lord Jesus Christ. And those who have no taste for him will be left to their own desserts. I hope you'll get hungry this week. I hope most of you already know the Lord. But would you be offended if you, would you allow me this week to preach to all of you, even you, as if none of you knew the Lord, as if I was going to a total pagan community? Would you allow that? I don't mean to offend you if you're already a Christian. But my friend, what I'm going to be saying this week should not offend you. If you are a Christian, if you are a true Christian, you should not be offended, as I'm what I'm talking about tonight, to relate back to that moment when you were convinced that you were lost in need of a Savior and how precious Jesus came to your soul. Or is that something that's totally foreign to your experience? Did you somehow get on the church roll without true conviction? Convinced that you were lost? Look again in your book, In His Plight. Therefore he went home and restrained himself as long as he could, that his wife and children should not perceive his distress. Well, I don't want to be embarrassed. <laughs> I can relate to this group up here tonight. It wasn't but a few years ago in which I was a teenager. It was an embarrassing age, I tell you. I still, I'm glad I'm over it, really. I'm glad I don't want to go through that again. But have to stand before a group? How embarrassing. And least little thing, they're going to laugh at me. And then you get tickled and lose control. That's normal. Now, here's a fellow who's convicted of his sin, and he's embarrassed. He doesn't want anybody to know about it. How many of you that are Christians already, when you became convicted of your sin, the next day you went back to high school or grade school and just started telling everybody, I'm convicted of my sin? Is that what you did? No, it wasn't. That wasn't what you did, was it? No, you said, I don't want anybody to know I went to church or to the revival meeting the other night, and I felt sort of bad. I don't want anybody to know that. They'll make fun of me. So he tries to hide this from his own family, but he could not be silent long because that his trouble increased. Wherefore, at length he broke, or he revealed his mind to his wife and his children, and thus he began to talk to them. Oh, my dear wife, said he, and you the children of my bowels, I, your dear friend, am in myself undone by reason of a burden that lieth hard upon me. Moreover, I am certainly informed that this our city will be burnt with fire from heaven, in which fearful overthrow both myself with thee, my wife, and you, my sweet babe, shall miserably come to ruin, except the which yet I see not, some way of escape can be found whereby we may be delivered. So he just opens up his heart to his wife and to his children. I remember when God first began to deal with me and converted me in a most unique way. I was the school atheist as my senior year. Hated preachers, hated the Bible, loved to debate and to tie up the preachers in that community with the things of the Scripture. I remember two or three preachers that left me on different occasions crying, weeping, because I had raised issues which they were not able to contend with. Oh, I was a proud, arrogant person. And one day God shut my proud, arrogant mouth and showed me that I was a rebel against God. And God converted me in a miraculous fashion. And word got out that Monday morning I went back to school. 
and captain of the high school basketball team. When we went to practice that day, why, the big uh, center, he said, Hey, Gabe, I hear you got religion over the weekend. Another one said, I'll give you a week and you'll be back with us. Hmm? Just like the hero's family, as they're going to oppose him. I'm thankful to say that on that high school basketball team, we saw four within 60 days of the members of that team converted to Christ and baptized. It spread throughout the community. The school atheist got religion. But there was a lot of mocking. There was a lot of opposition. And it has never let up since then. Do you know that I'll have opposition here this week? Yes, I will. Because I'm speaking about that which is opposed to the world, your flesh, and the devil. There's opposition. And so the individual couldn't constrain himself any longer. He said, I have been informed that the city in which we're living is an object of the wrath of God. And if God so chose at any minute, he could send down fire and send us all to judgment. And thus the city receives its name, the city of destruction. Young people, what Bunyan would have us to understand is that whosoever believeth in Christ hath eternal life, and whosoever believeth not Christ hath not life but the what? The wrath of God abideth on them. The city of destruction represents all people, all humanity, outside the ark of safety in the person of the Lord Jesus Christ. Have you ever been convinced by the revelation of God and his word that you have been or are tonight in the city of destruction? Now, the family's response to this was, if you notice in your book at this, his relations were sore amazed. Not for that they believed that what he said to them was true, but because they thought that some frenzied distemper had got into his head. And therefore it drawing toward night, and they hoping that sleep might settle his brains, with all haste they got him to bed. What was the family's response? They thought he was losing his mind. And at this point, modern psychology would say, Bunyan went too far. Bunyan's causing a psychological guilt trip upon people. And that's all preachers want to do is just make people feel guilty. And thus modern psychology says, stay away from the book. It'll make you feel guilty. It'll make you feel like that you're just nothing. My friend, that's what God designs for until you are brought to see that you are nothing but an object Of the just wrath of God, you'll never see the love of God for sinners in sending his son to die for them. God loves sinners, young people. He loves sinners so much, he became incarnate in human nature to die in the place of sinners. But before that God ever gives a peace to the conscience He first of all makes that conscience to become very uneasy and tries to get people to think about other things other than what the Word of God says. I remember those days, just like some of you here this week, when I used to attend those meetings in the country church, and when I would listen for a moment, and the preacher would say something about the coming judgment, and I'd begin to get a little tense. And you know, I learned quickly, Bill, how to get away from that. Just to blot that out and laugh and turn my head and elbow my neighbor and say, Boy, let's wait, wait till we get out on the ball field tomorrow. I could not dare sit there and listen attentively to what the fellow had to say. And to some of you will be here like that this week. You're already saying, let's get out of here. I want something else. Why? Because I'm touching a nerve here tonight. And you're trying to tune me out. Because if you listen attentively, 
There's going to be something that's going to be said that's not going to be just psychological manipulation, but it's something that's going to stay with you and stay with you a great length of time. So they put him to bed, thought that, that would be the end of it. Now drop down very quickly to the point in the book where he says, Now I saw upon a time that when he was walking in the fields that he was, as he want or accustomed to, reading in the book, greatly distressed in his mind. And as he read, he burst out as he had done before, crying, What shall I do to be saved? Now someone ought to ask at this time, now this is a book. It says that it represents the word of God. Some ought to be asking, is this a true picture of a person who is convicted of their sin? And did Bunyan get this out of the Bible, or did he get it out of the fancy of his own imagination? Now, let's answer that by turning in with me in your Bibles to Psalm chapter 38. Psalm chapter 38. Here's the picture of the man. He's walking down the road. He's reading in the Bible. He's distressed in his mind. He's trying to find a way to get the burden off of his back. Now, let's read in Psalm chapter 38 this account. Verse 1, O Lord, rebuke me not in thy wrath, neither chasten me in thy hot displeasure. For thine arrows stick fast in me, and thy hand presseth me sore. There is no soundness in my flesh because of thine anger, neither is there any rest in my bones because of my sin. For mine iniquities are gone over mine head, and as a heavy burden they are what? They're too heavy for me. My wounds stink and are corrupt because of my foolishness. I am troubled. I am bowed down greatly. I go mourning all the day long. For my loins are filled with a loathsome disease, and there is no soundness in my flesh. I am feeble and sore broken. I have roared by reason of this quietness of my heart. Lord, all my desire is before Thee. And my groaning is not hid from thee. My heart panteth, my strength faileth me. And as for the light of mine eyes, it is gone from me. Now watch verse 11. My lovers and my friends stand aloof from my sore and my what? What is it? My kinsmen stand afar off. You couldn't get a better passage to draw the picture out of the man that we have just described right here. So Bunyan's analogy is not coming out of the fancy of his own intellect. It's coming out of biblical revelation. Look on. I saw also that he looked this way and that way as if he would run. But he stood still, because as I perceived, he could not tell which way to go. Here's a man who's wanting to know how to be saved, but doesn't know how to be saved. He knows he's lost, he needs to be converted, but he doesn't know how to be converted. I looked then and saw a man named Evangelist coming to him, and he asked, Wherefore dost thou cry? Who is the Evangelist? In Bunyan's day, it was his pastor named John Gifford. And John Gifford, in his own uh, diary and other records, we have recorded he spent many, many nights conversing with John Bunyan telling him how to become a Christian. The evangelist represents a gospel witness, a messenger of God, to come and to show one how to be converted. So the evangelist asked, Why are you crying? He answered, Sir, I perceive by the book in my hand that I am condemned to die, and after that to come to judgment, and I find I am not willing to do the first, nor able to do the second.
It is appointed unto man once to what? To die, and then what? After this, the judgment. A quotation from the Bible. And the pilgrim says that, first of all, he says, I don't want to die, not willing to do that, and I'm not able to stand before God in the judgment. I'm condemned. I don't want either one of these things to happen. Then said Evangelist, now notice he counsels far differently than contemporary Christian counselors. I worked for years in uh, Christian young camps, some with camps of uh, 1,100, 1,200 young people. And I saw some of the greatest butchering up I've ever seen in my life of young people's lives by so-called Christian counselors. Counselors who tried to get young people to make professions of faith who didn't have the foggiest idea what the gospel was all about. And so they'd play on their emotions and try to get them to cry and to get them to say a little prayer. Notice how this fellow counseled. He did not put words in the individual's mouth. He wanted to make sure the individual was experiencing some work of God upon his soul. Then said the evangelist, why not willing to die since life is attended with so many evils? If you're so miserable, why don't you just die? How would you like to go to your pastor and ask him how to be saved? And he say, well, why don't you just go on and die? Huh? That's quite different than the approach that is given today. Is the pastor unkind? No, he's wanting to make sure that God is doing a work in the person's life. That's why I'm not here to twist any arms this week. I'm not here to try to mock you or to make fun of you. I don't have to do that. I can't convert a Christian. I can't save a soul. Only God Almighty can do that. And my friend, he can do that. And he does do that. And so the evangelist goes on and says, The man answered, Because I fear that this burden that is upon me, upon my back, will sink me lower than the grave, and I shall fall into topic, or as an expression of hell. Sir, if I be not fit to go to prison, I am not fit to go to judgment, and from thence to execution, and the thoughts of these things make me cry. What is the function of a Christian counselor? May I speak just a word to those of you who are counseling this week. If someone comes to you inquiring about Christ, and I pray they will, it is the function of a Christian counselor to point that person to Christ and then get out of the way. Don't try to put words in their mouths. Point them to Christ and the gospel, then step aside and let them deal personally with God. You're not the priest. It's your role as the prophet to expound the gospel and the person and work of Jesus Christ in the gospel. But don't you try to take their place and put words in their mouth, because if God is doing his work, you point them to Christ and then step out of the way and say, run, run to Christ. Come to Christ. You want to know what it means to come to Christ? Come and Brother Bill give you one of these little books, and we'll learn tomorrow and the next day. What does it mean to come to Christ? Then said Evangelist, if this be thy condition, why standest thou still? If you're so miserable, why aren't you doing something about it? And he answered, Because I know not whither to go. And then he gave him a parchment roll, and there was written therein, Flee from the wrath to come. Now notice this was not the Bible. This was a parchment roll, which I believe Bunyan understood to mean God's way of saving sinners. In the Bible, God tells how he saves sinners. And the evangelist was to tell the lost person how it is that God accepts sinners. And this represents the parchment roll, and the pilgrim will have this, and if we make it through to Friday, he'll present this as he enters into the gate of the celestial city. Flee from the wrath to come. 
The man therefore read it and looked upon Evangelist very carefully, said, Whither must I flee? Then said Evangelist, pointing with his finger over a very wide field, Do you see yonder wicked gate? Try to get the image. They're standing here and they're looking out across a wide field. And the evangelist, the minister, the Christian witness says, Do you see that little, small, narrow gate way out there across the field? And the man said, No. I appreciate his honesty. Appreciate his honesty. If that had been a modern Christian counselor, he'd have put a whole bunch of words in his mouth and said, now you repeat this, and they repeat that, and then they would have said, now you're saved, you're ready to be baptized. What does the wicked gate represent? Listen carefully, young people. It represents true conversion. And what the evangelist was asking the man, do you understand how to be truly converted? man says, no, I don't understand it. Then look what he said next. Then said the other, do you see yonder shining light? And he said, I think I do. I think I do. I like that portion of the book right there. He said, if you don't understand how to be truly converted, are you getting any light from the book that you're reading? He said, yeah. I think I am getting some light. Then the evangelist says, then you just keep reading that book. Keep your eye on the light and go directly to that light so thou shalt see the gate. Young people, if you don't know how to be saved, don't know how to be truly converted, the way that you'll learn is through reading the book. The psalmist says, the word is a lamp unto my feet and a what? What is it? A light unto my path. You want to know how to be truly converted? Look to the light that God gives in the book. Stay in the book. And so the man says, I can't see it clearly yet. And so the preacher says, just keep that light before you. And when you come up there to that little gate, then you knock and it shall be told thee what to do. Get more light. So I saw in my dream that the man began to run. That is, he began to read the book. This is an action story, isn't it? It's written to show action and progress all through the book, but every sentence is rich with meaning. He began to run. He read the book. Now, he had not run far from his own door when his wife and children, perceiving it, began to cry after him to return. But the man put his fingers in his ears and ran on, crying, Life, life, eternal life. And so he looked not behind him, but fled toward the middle of the plain. I had a lady come up to me one time and said, That's a terrible, terrible, sad story. To become a Christian, you mean you've got to put your wife and kids out in the street and don't support them anymore. <laughs> no, no, that's not what Bunyan's saying at all. It's merely saying that if you're going to become a Christian, it may mean that you may face opposition from your very family members. And then in the last part of the book, we'll see that the wife and all the children, which formerly made fun of their father and husband, they start out on the journey and go through the same path that the Christian went alone. So you may find family opposition as you run. Now then, if you have uh, your book, I would like for you to jump over very quickly to page 157. 157 for the remainder of our thoughts tonight on biblical conviction of sin. In this portion of the book, Christian and his companion, Hopeful, have a dialogue together, and they begin to talk, and Christian asked Hopeful to tell him about his conversion experience. And here we're just going to touch on some of the high points here, but this will illustrate what the Christian has been going through in the city of destruction as he leaves and he encounters obstinate and pliable, later on Mr. Worldly Wise Man, falling in the slough of the spawn, 
all of these things, this is an experience of a person coming to the knowledge of their sin. Now, in verse, if you'll look there in your page where it says, Then Christian began and said, Do you have that location? Did I give you the right page there? All right, thank you, Bill. How came you to think at first of doing what you do now, hopeful? Do you mean how I came at first to look after the good of my soul? Yes, that's my meaning, hopeful. Well, I continued a great while in the light of those things which were seen and sold at our fair. Hopeful lived in Vanity Fair. We'll touch on that as we get to it. Things which I believe now would have, had I continued in them still, drowned me in perdition and destruction. What things were they? Hopeful. All the treasures and riches of the world. I delighted much in rioting, reveling, drinking, swearing, lying, uncleanness, Sabbath-breaking, and what not that tended to destroy the soul. What kind of condition did Hopeful start out in? He loved this present world. He loved carnal living. He loved to have a good time. Now, there's nothing wrong with having a good time unless it violates God's moral principles. All right? I enjoy having a good time. And if the surf is right tomorrow, you're going to see me out there on it. Okay? I enjoy the water. Christianity is not a dreary thing. In fact, the only true happiness and peace that can be found in this life is found in a walk with God. But there is a walk outside of God's will, and it's called carnal living. And Hopeful's conversion began in that experience. He says, but I found at last by hearing and considering of things that are divine, which indeed I heard of you as also beloved faithful, that was put to death for his faith and good living in Vanity Fair, that the end of these things is death, and that for these things' sake the wrath of God cometh upon the children of disobedience. What's the second step in conversion? After that you're in love with this present world, you come in contact with a Christian witness. Somebody tells you that's wrong. I remember when I was a little boy, I grew up and spent the first five years of my education in a one-room country school. Now, that's something that I don't think probably anybody here tonight had that experience. Anybody that have go through that had one teacher. She taught all eight grades. There were about 20 kids in all those eight grades. Now, it was a very strict little school. The lady not only taught reading, writing, and arithmetic, she taught a Sunday school lesson at the end of the day. And everybody was very reverent, even though that most of them were unconverted. The time came when it was to consolidate the little one-room country school. We moved into a great big school, and I had 40 kids in my class alone. Great big school. Now then, my kids are graduating in classes of 400 in one class. Well, it didn't take me long when I got in that great big class to hear some words I'd never heard before, Bill. When I first heard them, boy, they made my ears sort of tingle. I never heard such words like that in a little rural country school. But it didn't take me long to learn how to use those words. And I began to cuss like a sailor. And I remember one day I was using God's name in vain in about five different sentences, just blankety blank, blank, blank. And a little girl that was in my class, little one-room country school, walked by, and she heard me. I'll never forget those little words. Naughty, naughty, naughty. Fifth grader. Now, she wasn't a preacher, but I tell you, God sometimes uses birds of the air and lilies of the field. And sometimes he uses a little girl to say, Jimmy, you didn't learn those words back there under Mrs. Helen. And that stuck me like a wedge. Now, my friend, that's how later on God shut my mouth to my boastness and my atheism. 
my unbelief against him, I came in contact with a Christian witness. Somebody said, the wages of sin is, is death. And my mouth was shut. Now, Christian says, did you presently fall under the power of this conviction? That is, when you heard that this was the outcome, did you have conviction about it immediately? Hopeful. No, I was not presently willing to know the evil of sin, nor the damnation that follows upon the commission of it, but endeavored when my mind at first began to be shaken with the words to shut my eyes against the light thereof. I've already addressed that. You can sit in church and begin to hear the wages of sin is death and shut your mental eyes off. And you can have your mind tonight overhear what you're going to be doing tomorrow afternoon. I won't listen to that. I'll be indifferent. I'll just disregard it. Christian, but what was the cause of your carrying of it thus to the first workings of God's blessed Spirit upon you? How did you know this was God's at work? Hopeful. The causes were, first, I was ignorant that this was the work of God upon me. Second, uh, I never thought that by awakings for sin, God at first begins the conversion of a sinner. Secondly, sin was very sweet to my flesh, and I was loath to leave it. Why may some of you not come to Christ tonight? Because you know that you love what you're doing. You know you're participating in some sin, and you know that if you became a Christian, you'd have to part with that. That's what Hopeful says. That's why he wasn't at first convicted. Thirdly, he says, I could not tell how to part with my old companions. Their presence and actions were so desirable unto me. I don't know how to break off with my friends. Well, they'd mock and make fun of me if I became a Christian. Fourthly, the hours in which convictions were upon me were such troublesome and such hard of frightening hours that I could bear no, not so much as the remembrance of them upon my heart. Christian, then it's as it seems, sometimes you got rid of your trouble. Yes, verily, but it would come back into my mind again, and then I should be as bad, nay, as worse than I was before. Why, what was it that brought your sins to your mind again? Hopeful. Many things, if I did meet but a good man in the street. Has uh, that ever happened to you? Isn't it interesting when you get convicted of your sin and you get around somebody you know that's living for the Lord, you, you, you feel a little strange around them? He said, if I heard any read the Bible, I got troubled. If my head began to ache, if I got sick, I began to get concerned. What if I die? If I were told that some of my neighbors were sick, or if I heard the bell toll for some that were dead, that is, if I heard that there was going to be a funeral, this bothered me. If I thought of dying myself, or if I heard that sudden death happened to others, but especially when I thought of myself that I must quickly come to judgment. Christian, could you not at any time with ease get off the guilt of sin when by any of these ways it came upon you? No, not I, for then they got faster hold of my conscience, etc., etc., then he tries to reform himself, as Mr. Worldly Wise Man will try to get the Christian to do in the first part of the book, and that doesn't work. And finally, he comes down, if you'll glance on down a, a few paragraphs in your book, to where Christian says, how came that about since you were now reformed? There were several things brought upon me, especially such saying as these, all our righteousnesses are as what? Filthy rags, by the works of the law shall no man be justified. On and on. Now then, I want you to come down to the portion of the book where Christian says, about three paragraphs on, What did you do then? Do, I could not tell what to do until I broke my mind to faithful, for he and I were well acquainted. He told me that unless I could obtain the righteousness of a man that never had sinned, Neither mine own nor all the righteousness of the world could save me. Where does conviction, a convincing that you are a helpless sinner in need of salvation, where does it consummate at in conversion? It comes to this place, young people. Now listen carefully as we bring this to a conclusion. It brings you to see 
that unless that you have as righteousness in your life as God has, you'll never see God. Unless you have the righteousness of a man who's never sinned one time, you'll never see God in peace. Have you ever been brought to that conviction? Are you convinced of that tonight? That if you are ever going to be received into the celestial city in the world to come, you must possess the righteousness of a person who has never sinned one time. Where does that leave you? Where does that leave you? That's where I'm going to leave you tonight. That's where I'm going to leave you tonight. I'm going to ask you to go back to your rooms tonight and think 